trust you more, Lord, when you do call us out. Lord, that we, in faith, um, even though we cannot see or understand, Lord, that we trust you. We put our hope completely in you. Lord, we thank you that you are good and you're faithful and you will not fail us. Lord, we know that all things work together for the good for those who love you, for those who are the called according to your promises. Lord, we just thank you for that. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning as we look into your word. Just illuminate our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you take your seats this morning? Most of you are aware that is my passion for biblical counseling. It is what the Lord used to bring my family here six years ago. I was considered the counselor of the church. I would deal with the various issues and struggles that people within the church had. But the reality of it is all of us are counselors All of us are counselors. When we give our opinion, when we share our thoughts with others, we are in essence counseling. When we act on the thoughts that come to our minds, we are counseling ourselves as well. We can't get around the fact that all of us are doing counseling on a daily basis. A good counselor, though, has to come to the right diagnosis. What is the real problem? What is the root issues that we're dealing with with the problem? How do we take steps to work through these issues? What are the correct solutions to the problem? As Christians, we are called to give biblical counsel to anyone and everyone. God's word says in Colossians 4, 6, you might just want to jot some of these down. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Or 1 Peter 3, 15 says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Or Ephesians 4.15 that says, speak the truth in love, right? Scripture gives us the expectation that we as believers are to counsel those inside the church and outside the church as well. Rightly, correctly, biblically. We are called to speak God's word to one another. We are called to help marital couples who are having marital issues. We are called to come alongside our neighbors and our friends and our family who are struggling with very issues like fear, worry, anxiety, depression, stress, unforgiveness, etc. The church, us, we are the hope of the world. Christ is working through us. We need to be able to give hope to those who are hopeless. Those that cannot see Christ, we need to be Christ to them. The way we can do this is to be more equipped, more sharpened 
in the discipline of biblical counseling. So we are excited, and it's been in the newsletter already, but we are excited to announce that we will be offering biblical counseling certification that will start at the end of August. It will be an intensive process. It will take probably roughly about a year and a half to finish, and it'll take about four to six hours weekly to do this training. And the certification that we'll be using is ACBC, which stands for Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. The goal is for us as a church body to be equipped to help others through the counseling ministry through the Word of God. I envision having a counseling team that can serve our membership well, that can work through all the various issues and struggles that happens within the membership. But even more so than that, I'm excited in the fact that we'll be able to offer free counsel to anybody in our community who needs help. Again, we need to share Christ and be Christ to Marco Island community, to Naples, to Estero, Benita, Fort Myers as well. I want us to be a church that handles the word rightly, accurately, for God's glory. That means we look at people and situations through the lens, through the guise of Scripture. But please don't hear me saying that we need to spout off our opinions that are nowhere found in Scripture. Don't hear me saying that we careless throw Bible verses at one another like hand grenades. Instead, Hear that I am encouraging us to know the word of God in a loving, in a humble manner or fashion so we can share life with others. And this takes us to our main text this morning. Where Paul gives us a glimpse of people who live without Christ, Paul expresses what is going on, going on in the mind of an unbeliever. So if you have your Bibles, open to Ephesians 4, 17. Ephesians 4, 17, where we will go through Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 this morning. As we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we come to you reverently, recognizing we deserve nothing, that we, that you owe us nothing, but yet you, your grace pours out on us. Father, help us to be equipped biblically to help those around us, to be able to look at the word of God and know what to do ourselves, to be a community who will speak truth into one another's life, that we are willing to live for you regardless of what we learned in the past, what tradition says. Help us to biblically live our lives that way alone. Help us to be a people faithful to your word who really know your word. Live it out daily in our lives. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit living inside of us, allowing us to be empowered to actually be faithful to you. Thank you for your mercy. And through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ephesians 4.17 says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, begins to diagnose what is taking place inwardly in the minds and hearts of lost people. And again, if we are going to counsel people accurately, we have to be able to diagnose them accurately. So what does Paul mean when he says the futility of their minds? Well, the Greek word for futility here can also be translated as vanity, emptiness, unreality, or purposelessness. That means that every thought that is held unsubmissive to Christ is pointless, empty, or worthless. Which leads to diagnosis number one. That says all thoughts are empty if Christ is not on the throne of one's life. Diagnosis number one says all thoughts are empty if Christ is not on the throne of one's life. And I'm not saying that unbelievers' thoughts don't have meaning. But the focus, the desire, and the energy consumed is consumed with everything but Christ. God is not a part of their thoughts. That means if he's not a part of their thoughts, he's not a part of their life and lifestyle. This makes their thinking empty and pointless. Their life is not honoring to God. They're not using their energy to glorify God, and they're not praising him on a daily basis. They are consumed with their own agendas. They are focused on living for the moment. God's word is not their authority. Jesus Christ is not their Lord and Savior. But Paul goes on. Let's continue on. Ephesians 4, verse 18. And he goes on and says, They are darkened in their understanding. They are darkened in their understanding. So Paul says that their empty and worthless thinking leads to a darkened understanding. And darkened means blindness, a spiritual darkness, which leads to diagnosis number two. Diagnosis number two says non-believers have a darkened understanding. Diagnosis number two says non-believers have a darkened understanding. How they understand or conclude situations or make decisions comes from a darkened perspective. They are blind. They don't see the right ways of living. It's not just a, a wrong view on marriage or bad advice on how to parent, but they live lives in darkened ways. What, as we've discussed, how we, what we believe reveals how we will live our lives. And thoughts not under the lordship of Jesus Christ lead to wrong conclusions for life. For example, or a few examples, a couple decides to live together, or someone is depressed, so they start drinking, or a parent can't get their child in order, so they start manipulating them. These conclusions are some of the ways we see a darkened understanding being played out in real time. 
but let's continue on. Ephesians 4, 18. That says they are darkened in their understanding. And it says alienated from the life of God. So empty or worthless thoughts, a wicked or evil perspective on life means they are excluded or separated from God. They live without God or outside of depending on God for their strength. Who is their authority? Themselves. They decide to handle situations how they want. They decide what's right and wrong. They listen to the culture or the world around them. That's how they make their decisions. They are living life like a blind man driving who is already driven off the cliff. They have no idea the disaster that awaits them, what they are headed for, the dangers that are coming, the horrors that they will face in the near future. Separation from God's means living reckless and lawless lives. And I mean lawless in the fact that the authority of Scripture is not guiding their life. Which leads to diagnosis number three. Diagnosis number three says unbelievers live separated from God. Unbelievers live separated from God. Why do they live this way? Why don't they see the danger, the evil, the arrogant way they are living? Why can't they see their rebellion? How can they spurn their creator in such an arrogant, direct fashion? Well, let's go on in the verses, and it tells us. Let's move back to Ephesians 4.18. And he says, Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Paul is not referring to the muscle that pumps in their chest, right? And we've discussed what the heart was on many occasions. But Paul is talking about the inner man, the core of the person. In essence, who we really are. The heart, the place where our motives flow from. The heart is what guides each of us, the Bible says. And the heart of an unbeliever, the unregenerate person, is sick, dark, and wicked. It is evil, the Bible says. That's why Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That means that the wicked heart of the ungodly are deceived by their own heart, right? That's why scripture says in Proverbs, all a man's ways seem right to him or all a man's ways seem innocent to him. It's because they are being deceived by their own hearts. Diagnosis number four says unbelievers have a wicked heart. Diagnosis number four says unbelievers have a wicked heart. If the root, the heart of man is wicked, then the thoughts, understanding will be wrong or evil, and they will live life as their own God instead of submitting to the one true God, Jesus Christ. That means wrong perspectives will be believed and confidently lived out because they don't know they are being deceived. The person who's being deceived really doesn't know they're deceived, right? Or they wouldn't be deceived, correct? Paul concludes 
in this section, Ephesians 4.19, by saying that they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So Paul continues to lay on the bad news about unbelievers, right? This is just plain scripture. I don't know if some of you are thinking, man, this sounds really harsh. Well, I'm just going through verse by verse what the Bible says about unbelievers, And Paul continues to give the bad news by saying they continue to get worse as they live this way. They become more hard-hearted or callous. They plunge further and further into sinful ways of thinking and acting. Scripture says the conscience becomes seared or numbed by sin in other places, and they get darker. They become comfortable in their sin. The guilty conscience leaves, and they go to even darker and darker places, which leads to diagnosis number five. Diagnosis number five says unbelievers progress in sinfulness. Unbelievers progress in sinfulness. We see a similar progression of sin in more details in Romans 1, 18 through 32. Why don't we turn there to Romans 1, 18 through 32, and I'll read that. God's holy, inerrant, infallible word says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them over to their lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than serve the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and to men. Likewise, they gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Does this start to relate to some of us, what's happening in our society men committing shameless acts with men and receiving into themselves the due penalty for their error and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil covetousness malice they are full of envy murder strife deceit 
maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We see here that is a spiral. It is a downward spiral that continues to go out of control as our life is autonomous, is separate away from God. This is just the description, the explanation Scripture gives us about an unbeliever. And Paul warns the surrounding churches not to go back in that direction. So we've, we've learned, we've heard the right or correct diagnosis about an unbeliever, a lost person. We understand the way they think and how to look at their heart. They are not misguided people with a good heart. Scripture says they are misguided because they have a bad or wicked heart. That's what Scripture says. So when we are talking to an unbeliever, we should not think, this person's life is so great. They have a great job, a great family, a great house, a great life. No, they just need to add God to their already great life. No, that's not what we think. We have just read what is going on the inside of unbelievers. And we know from Ephesians 2 that they are under the sway, the control of Satan, the prince of this world, it says. Heart change means life transformation. It is learning to die to self. It's not just adding Christ to a self-focused, self-driven, self-glorifying life. Well, you may be thinking, wow, this is really great to get all these wonderful diagnoses of an unbeliever. But how does this relate to me, relate to you? Well, number one, as we've mentioned, I think we have to have the right diagnosis to actually help people. So we have to start coming to people as they really are, not what culture says. That's number one, but the real number one that I have on the screen, I'm probably mixing you guys up back there, but number one, the right diagnosis of fallen humanity allows us to know that sin is still our biggest problem. Number one says the right diagnosis of fallen humanity allows us to know that sin is still our biggest or greatest problem. A.W. Tozer once said this, the idea that the world is a playground instead of a battleground has now been accepted in practice by vast majority of Christians. We are in a battleground. Satan wants to still steal, kill, and destroy. Sin is still alive and well, even though most churches have replaced words like sin and repentance with healing and wounds because they're psychologized. Sin still affects believers and unbelievers alike. Satan still wants our children. He wants to pull the children of God away from the parents. Satan still wants to cause division and destroy marriages. Satan is in the business of wrecking homes. And sin is still at the core of our deepest problems, our biggest struggles. But number two, the right diagnosis of fallen man, fallen humanity, allows us to be in awe of God's grace. 
Number two says the right diagnosis of fallen humanity allows us to be in awe of God's grace. William Secker said this, Until we taste the bitterness of our own misery, we will never relish in the sweetness of God's mercy. Until we see how foul our sins have made us, we will never pay our tribute to praise to Christ for washing us. The reality is if we don't see the gravity of our depravity, then we won't understand the depth of God's grace. Or to say it another way, We will take the grace of God for granted if we don't see how sinful we are and how sinful this world is around us. And we start looking at the Word of God through the Word of God, through the lens of the Word of God, instead of our cultural lenses. But number three, the right diagnosis of fallen humanity allows us to strive for holiness. The right diagnosis of fallen humanity allows us to strive for holiness. Let's go back to Ephesians 4.17 real quickly here. Ephesians 4.17. Where we started. And Paul says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Why would Paul command the churches in the surrounding areas not to walk as the Gentiles do? Why would he not want them to act like the world around them? Well, the obvious reason was because they struggled not to conform to the world around them, correct? They were Gentiles just a few years prior. They, used, they were used to living their own way, being their own authority, making all their decisions, right? Right? I mean, ancient first century Rome, everyone went to the Roman Colosseum to watch people fight to the death. Or it was normal for the men of the Roman culture to go to the pagan temples and sleep with the temple prostitutes. And to be considered a good citizen of Rome meant you worship the Roman emperor almost like he was God himself. I mean, this was just a way of life. This is what those people were coming out of when they were becoming Christian. It was a hard life, and they were persecuted for it. And Paul says, don't live like you lived when you didn't know Christ. You were called out. You were a called out people, right? We talked about the church meant called out ones. You were a called out people separated for God's purposes. I wonder if we have a hard time not conforming to the world around us. Are we conforming to the world around us? Or are we learning to walk closer with Christ? As we see the American church caving in areas like worldliness, pride, homosexuality, and not walking with Christ, whether it's in marriage or parenting, we see chaos in the church. We see chaos in the home life. And the Lord calls the church out of the world to live for his glory. That means we are called to live holy lives. Now, I know that means we are still going to sin and struggle, right? But to live this way means we do look radically different than the world in certain areas. Today, we see more churches interested in being relevant than holy. 
To say the church is conforming to the world is an understatement in our society. God's word in 2014 still says the same thing that it said 2,000 years ago when James wrote this in James 4.4. He said, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do we look more like the world than Christ? Hebrews tells us what? That without holiness, we can't see God. Without holiness, it says we can't even see God. May we be a church that continues to look at life through the lens of God's word. But in conclusion, the right diagnosis of life comes from God's word. How we see others, how we see ourselves, how we see God must come from a biblical standpoint. We have heard that it was said that leaders define reality, but the truth is God's word defines reality. Do we look at life from the lens of scripture? Do we realize that scripture teaches teaches us everything we need to know for life? What are we using as our authority? Or what guides our decisions that we are making in the present today? Are we a church that offers biblical counseling to others? Or are we making decisions from just what we hear from other people or TV shows or psychology? Is our advice, our counsel, our thoughts guided by the word of God? Well, maybe we be a church that counsels people biblically because we love God, because we are passionate about Christ, because we are empowered with the Spirit to honor and praise our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to, church. Let's go to our Lord as we end. Holy Father, we praise you. We honor you. We thank you for your word, and what your word tells us. Help us to walk by it. Help us to live by it. Help us not to beat people over the head with the Bible, though, as well. Help us to be humble as we talk to people. Let your spirit work mightily in our hearts. Help us to love people enough to share your word, to share your truths with others, Father. We thank you for giving us your word. Help us to be a people who truly walk in it. It's through Christ's name, amen.